While researching this book, I discovered this very telling anecdote. Herbert Hoover asked his treasury secretary, Andrew Mellon, for five cents so he could call a friend. Mellon handed him a dime and said, here's 10 cents, call them both. <laughs> so if Hoover was so unpopular, why is there such a large market for Hoover revisionism? There isn't really. His only modern fans are a small contingent of free market fundamentalists who claim that Hoover's dithering, inept, and largely symbolic response to the crash of 29 was actually an economic masterstroke? Huh. So after Dr. Nair was accused of plagiarizing most of his book, Calvin Coolidge, An American Life, he became a free market fundamentalist? No, he just followed the example of many disgraced public figures like Hoover, Rudy Giuliani, or Donald Trump, and sought acceptance among conservatives who have lower standards for honesty. Wow, Dr. Nair sounds like a character that my old podcasting partners at DB Comedy might have dreamed up. Well, I don't think even their sick imaginations could create such a sociopathic narcissist. Well, maybe not. You're listening to Chelsea's Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. Chelsea Denault, and we'll be back to talk more with author Bonnie Dune about her new memoir, 51st Dates with 50 Historians, after this musical interlude from the Northern Ohio Kazoo Orchestra. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 31, Herbert Hoover. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. We are coming to you nationwide for this recording of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. Uh, I have to say that looking into Herbert Hoover, there's a lot of interesting things, especially when, since we talk about our uh, notion of historical revisions and how to reinterpret precedents. But we'll get to that. First of all, live from Michigan, we have... Me, I'm Chelsea Denault. I'm James McCray. Live from just outside the Grand Canyon in Flagstaff, Arizona... It's me, Tommy. And here in Chicago, hi, Joe. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. I'm Patrick. And I'm Paul from Palatine, which makes All me sound right. like I run a militia, but I don't. <laughs> you know. Not yet. You know, Joe, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that we have a lot of interesting things to talk about with Hoover because that's such a change from our usual talkbacks. <laughs> well, um, there's, you know, again, we talk, we have talked in previous episodes of what people have been taught about certain presidents versus some of their historical realities. And so with uh, Hoover, again, as I also mentioned, we're start, we now begin to get to presidents that people that are alive have remembered and as a child of two depression babies and whose grandfathers eventually got work with the uh, WPA and various relief projects, the reputation of Herbert Hoover was not good. And it must be said that, you know, the child, you are the child of two depression babies. And I was a child of two, you know, one depression baby. And my father was born right beforehand. Dad was born, the economy, you know, the stock market crashed. I don't think they're related, but, you know, anything's (laughs) possible. But it's worth noting that they could have been panic babies if Herbert Hoover didn't think the word depression was less frightening. Mm -hmm. I got it. I got it. 
I, I want to cut in. I, I've had uh, depression and anxiety disorders. Lateral move <laughs> at best. I mean, one could say, Joe, that Hoover sucked. Oh. And I just wanted to get that out of the way as early as possible. So and it's can. a damn good so, joke, Patrick. So none of us need to do that joke for the rest of the time. <laughs> Thanks for taking that bullet, Patrick. Yeah. I have uh, very few services, but telling the bad joke that no one else will is, is mm. one of them. <laughs> Brother, can you spare a dime? Get away, you bum! Sheesh, can a president go anywhere in peace without these darn hobos asking for a handout? Everyone complains. Hoover caused the panic. Hoover ruined the economy. Thanks to Hoover, all my crops burned in the dust bowl. What more do they want from me? President Herbert Hoover, is your once sterling reputation tarnished? Who are you? I'm the voice that asks rhetorical questions. Is your administration drowning in the worst financial crisis in our country's history? Are people blaming you for the market crash? Are millions of people left destitute under your watch? Why, yes. Can you help me fix these problems, rhetorical question guy? Oh, heck no. What you need is better branding. Oh, will that help the country? Oh, heck no again. But I will help make sure your name is always and forever associated with the tragedies you're about to oversee. What? Wait. We'll roll out a vast line of products that will carry the Hoover brand far and wide and make Americans say the Hoover name over and over and over. That's not what I you was... You believe in... in the free market, don't you? With my whole heart and soul. You believe the markets and enterprising individuals are better suited to fix this panic than the government, don't you? Why, yes. Yes, of course I do. Then the first thing we do is rebrand this panic. How? Well, by not calling it a panic. That's scary. But a depression, that's just sad. Depression. Hmm. I like it. Go on. Now just listen to our first Hoover branded item. Are you tired of sleeping out in the cold? You bet. Well, the Hoover brand is here to help. Swell. Get ready to warm your cold, sorry bones with cheap, readily available Hoover Blankets! But this is just last week's Bucyrus Daily News. That's right. Keep your family warm this winter with Hoover Blankets. How does that help me? Mother can snuggle up with the women's section. I'd like to know what Ethel Barrymore is up to. Father can sleep under the sports pages. Well, knowing Dizzy Dean pitched a no-hitter against the Dodgers sure will help my sleep. And tuck the kitties in under their favorite comic strip characters. Hey, no fair! I want the Cat and Jammer kids! Now, now, it's your sister's turn. You'll just have to sleep with Dick Tracy until the Sunday edition comes out. Hoover Blankets. Sleep tight, America. Much more than a one-time loser when you think depression, you think Hoover. Thanks, Thanks Hoover. Hoover. Up until he was president, dude looked like he'd have been a great president. He had everything oh, on paper. So we're going to do a cinematic thing where we start with one scene, go into yeah. the flashback, and then move forward to where we are. Yeah, exactly. so, I mean, so we open on Herbert Hoover. A snow globe <laughs> drops to the floor. <laughs> back to his childhood. Truly, though, Joe's right. Hoover was like the wonder child of the, the Wunderkind of like the of World War Two or World War Two, World War One. And um, you maybe, know, the, maybe don't call him the Wunderkind. This is not a, not <laughs> that's a good for time. the Second World yeah. War. Mm -hmm. I, I agree, though. What's it's weird to me about him. He's like a great humanitarian, really, yeah. up until he joins the presidency. He's on like the Belgian relief fund that becomes sort of just our general like food relief to Europe after World War One. He oversees, hang on, I've got it written down. He oversees relief in the Mississippi flood of 1927. And specifically about that, four governors whose states bordered the Mississippi asked for him to do that by name. They reached out to, would have been Coolidge, right? And like requested him because he was so known 
for being this great humanitarian. Admittedly, well, yeah. I, I want to get in as a quick word that uh, he refused to quell racial unrest in the refugee camps. He pretty much let white supremacists run rampant. I don't think that was going to be guy. my asterisk on that humanitarian yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, and I and I want to get it into. I don't think he's a good guy. He comes across that way by the standards of 1927. He did all right for a great shitty time. I even, you know, even going like just looking at his biography, it was cool. Uh, I don't know if he's our only president from Iowa, but born in Iowa, both parents died early, raised in Oregon, which you can make the, you know, which sort of makes him our first West Coast president decades before we give credit to Nixon for that. I know it's the wrong era, too, but it just made me think of Oregon Trail. Yeah. He, uh, as, as, as a young kid growing up in Iowa, he was the very sickly to the point where he actually did die once. Uh, wow. But then his, his, he was resuscitated by his uncle. Um, and, oh, like his heart stopped? Uh, it was the croup. Yeah. Uh, yes. Also, uh, also apparently... One, one of those of, good old-timey diseases. Right. Also, apparently, part of the, the first graduating class of Stanford... Graduated oh, wow. 1895, which is why the Hoover Institute's in Palo Alto, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, despite failing all of the exams except the math one. <laughs> Although, uh, yeah, but he did pass all of his classes except for German, another reason that he's not a wunderkind. He was, there's, there's probably nowhere else for me to get this uh, tidbit in, but he was uh, apparently known in his childhood as being a little stick in the mud, but not for his personality. It's because he was frequently stuck in the mud. <laughs> we should also mention from his childhood because i know we mentioned him and nixon as west coast presidents also our only quaker presidents yes both both tied to like episodes of military violence there's maybe something there i don't know <laughs> episodes of military quakers. violence and near near collapse of the federal government interesting yeah, and, and just um, terrible terrible men no more quaker presidents <laughs> you're in so. first Paul, you gotta show their wild oats first, but uh, Hoover, I can push back a little bit on that and make a perhaps unnecessary modern parallel while I, you know, do what I do, which is, you know, ask a stupid provocative question to provoke discussion. He was kind of the J.D. Vance of his day. Ooh. The guy who tried to make a virtue out of his humble origins. If I can do this, you can do this. Okay, I've got I've got the top for this guy. <laughs> this guy is Michael Bloomberg. Oh, oh. He's a, that's that's insulting to someone, but I'm not sure who. So, so uh, who were sexually harassed a lot of his underlings? I mean, probably. Was he five three and resentful about it? Probably. No, I think if you look at, at Bloomberg's kind of you know, public persona. It's one that's based on I am the technocrat. I am the one who has, you know, the expertise. I have the gravitas to deal with the situation. And I, I am over both. I am I, I can bubble above both parties. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and I think that that was exactly the character that Hoover very self-consciously, you know, created. Um you know, he didn't want to be seen as a as a partisan hack. He didn't want to be seen as, you know, as somebody who was particularly avaricious, you know, especially after Coolidge's incredible kind of, God, I don't even want to do this anymore presidency to be seen as the guy who was like really eager to take it on, I think would have been a bad look. And so I, I think that, um, but, it, you know, I'm reading here that he he did, you know, was consciously building up political support kind of through back channels throughout the 1920s to launch a campaign for presidency evidently was was surprised when Coolidge decided to call it quits mm -hmm. um but once he did pretty much put his name right in the ring and said hey guys I, I think I'm I'm th I think I'm your man um, so why initially the Republican Party if he was hovering between both like what what clinched it well, it well I think like that's that's where he had grown up right I mean like he had served in the the cabinet and he had been appointed and you know, by Harding. And so, you know, I think to, to go and say, okay, I'm going to be a Democrat at that point. Plus, you know, he, he was a businessman. Republicans had been winning. There's a lot of reasons, I think, to, to stick with that ticket.
I, I feel like in the post-World War I era, America is coming off of this, this high of both an economic high because of the wartime production that they've had to launch, and two, this kind of nationalistic high of like, ah, we saved Europe's asses. Can we say asses? We can say asses. Like, we saved Europe. We just said asses, asses a bunch, so. <laughs> and, and, asses. And so, and so um, I think it's not even Hoover and his cronies saying, ah, we manage our money so much better. I think it's this sense of in, imperviousness of America that comes out of the high of World War One. Yeah. I mean, he's the classic case of it's easy to pull yourself up by your bootstraps if someone else has paid for your bootstraps. Which is ironic because he was a he was apparently a self-made millionaire because mm -hmm. he graduated as an engineer in Stanford and spent his part of his first career during the boxer in China, where he got to witness the boxer rebellion, but also do some relief work there and also start to make some of his money out there as well. What, what kind of an engineer, Joe? Uh, this mining engineer mining engineer you know why this matters because in 1988 he was uh in the inaugural class of the mining hall of fame wow <laughs> i thought you said this mattered so did you get like a golden pickaxe or something <laughs> the golden helmet oh my gosh it was it was one of the facts that i stumbled across that i was like what the hell i love it so it is yeah did so he have political ambitions was it one of those things where he just said i'm doing these things because i eventually want to put myself in there's, a position to run for the presidency or there's a quote of his and i'm going to look for it during the discussion but it's about his time on the and i wrote down the actual name the commission for relief in belgium where he said like accidentally i had entered public life and i realized i could never go back like it sounded like he was very reluctantly he was like oh god damn it now i'm in politics Actually, yeah, no, that, also, that sounds more like he got the bug. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a conversation that we've ha had many times before as well, right? Presidents or not even presidents, but people in public life putting on this, um, these airs that, ah, woe is me, I am being called by the public to public service, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that I buy it with Hoover, just like mm -hmm. I don't buy it with Washington. It's just- Or Eisenhower. It's right. just Hoover's rise was was kind of as a civil servant. I mean, Department of Commerce during the Harding administration, yet somehow he misses out on yeah. Teapot Dome and all of that corruption which, lands on his feet. Stays. Which is insane because it's kind of a mineral thing. He should have been there. Yeah, that's he like been there right taking alley, That whole thing. I have yeah. the quote, by the way, if you'll indulge Ooh, yeah. me, and it is this. I did not realize it at the moment, but on August 3rd, 1914, my career was over forever. I was on the slippery road of public life. I'm with Chelsea. I don't buy it. Yeah, that's uh, a humble yeah. brag. That is a humble brag for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, he does, right? He's He has, he builds this reputation during World War I as, as being this great manager of emergencies. And I think it sticks with him, and which is why during the flood the mississippi flood in 1927 which up till that point was one of the worst natural disaster that, that the united states has ever seen um of course governors are going to be asking for this fema of one by name <laughs> of course i feel like like most uh great natural disasters in american history the word natural also needs masterishness to it yes <laughs> yeah it actually does raise a question and talking like it's it's how does one jump from being in a presidential cabinet to a presidential campaign, much less a winning presidential campaign? Now, we know in the 19th century, you had all these power brokers, particularly in Ohio, and we know it's just before we start to get media as in the form of, of radio, but that's a weird career arc to wind up being president. Well, I would he, say the flood did it for him. It, it gave him a great publicity. He got to be shown as someone who could make decisions in a crisis. And he really did help people. 
And some people have said that it wasn't FDR that was the first president where people thought the government should be doing things for us. It was the Mississippi flood and under Coolidge where people thought, well, the government should be helping us in this flood era, especially when it was bearing down on New Orleans, a major seaport. And I want to take this opportunity to say Calvin Coolidge hates black people. <laughs> Kanye West wasn't there to say it. I want to get it in. Also, I, I'm pretty sure Herbert Hoover as well. And maybe all of the presidents around this time. It's a bad time. These aren't good people. The so looking- about 1928 election, I believe, one thing that was interesting was that he did not have the support of the roaring support of his predecessor. I think he was endorsed as a fellow Republican, but Calvin Coolidge, Chelsea has probably got some good stories too, but Calvin Coolidge said of his, the time that uh, Harding, the, the time that uh, Hoover, excuse me, served in his cabinet, I've spent six years taking advi- unsolicited advice from that man. All of it bad. <laughs> yep. But at a the same time, right? Coolidge, Coolidge understands that if a Republican is going to get elected, he can't say that publicly. Um, and so he does endorse Hoover, even though he definitely doesn't want to. <laughs> and and can, go ahead, Joe. I was going to say the campaign, he been, well, first of all, he runs like it's a, he basically runs a Rose Garden campaign. My, apparently he only made seven speeches. But he was a lousy a speaker. speaker. And he was a lousy speaker. But he also had a very distinct advantage in that his opponent, the, the campaign ended up being the classic it's more about the opponent than you because al smith and his catholicism and his alleged progressivism apparently dominated and swamped uh the election. plus he was an irishman well james I mean, and chelsea would no you say that were... was going to win in 28 i mean the, the campaign was over before it started you know <laughs> coolidge exits office popular the economy is doing as well as it ever had oh well there and take a farm the country is at peace you know what what more do you want you know hoover's hoover alcohol (laughs) well smith Smith threw a hail mary as is his want being an irish catholic and said (laughs) we'll end prohibition so i don't see why that didn't work we we talked about running on good times what was the Republican Party slogan in 1928? Ooh, I don't a know. chicken in every pot and every a car, car in every garage. In every garage. And leave us not forget that uh, in his inauguration speech, what was the exact quote? Where he claimed in his speech, in the few speeches. I got it. I got it. I take it office. Hoover said that quote: "Given the chance to go forward with the policies of the last eight years, we shall soon, with the help of God." Be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. <laughs> Republican? Through that time. You just read his lips. Oh. <laughs> One thing I do want to bring up is where before we move out of the uh, election and into the presidency, mm-hmm. I, I do want to emphasize since we every once in a while we tend to gloss over the race question. And we've we've kind of tapped along the edges of it, but the Republicans do very clearly adopt a kind of like lily white strategy in the South. And this is a really important point to make as you kind of see them prioritizing where, how they would like to win. Like, yeah, we did enough with the freedmen. It was nice. They got us here, but Ideally, we'd like to get this to be the party of white men voting. And indeed, it's, if you look it's at not that, the first, it's not the first retreat, but it's oh, yeah. in some ways the last retreat of yeah. the Republican Party as the progressive party on race. And indeed, and if you look at the map of 1928, the only states Al Smith wins are the deep southern states with the exception of Florida and Massachusetts. But they had a Native American jazz band play the inauguration. So it's all good. All good in the hood. Oh, that's a real unfortunate thing. 
Yeah, you should not. I would track the, the, the hood in that sense. <laughs> Did you have anything else to say, Chelsea? Pre before we get into the presence? Oh no, just that it plays into the religious uh, aspect oh, yeah. too, right? Like the South being a deeply uh, Protestant area, and it plays into anti-Catholicism argument as well. Herbert Hoover received was so popular before he actually started doing anything or not doing anything as it were that he was received a standing ovation at game one of the 1929 world series oh was that the, was that the 1929 version of barack obama getting the nobel peace prize before he's done anything mm. well remember that remember well, actually, is that more of a stick in the eye to coolidge then if you're going to make that analogy <laughs> And also yeah. in those days, the, they actually finished the World Series before the end of October when the crash actually happened. So that was his Boy, last gasp of popularity. The World Series in uh, the, like the first week, uh, first, second week in October. Mm -hmm. uh, and who won that World Series, Patrick? Do you... Why the hell would I know that, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> it was the Phillies. Brought it up! Was, I believe I that, was the World, that was the World Series in which the Chicago Cubs blew an eight to nothing lead <laughs> in a single inning and wound up losing that game 10 to nothing that's all right they'll bounce back they'll bounce back quick right mm -hmm. yeah. right philadelphia athletics oh so before they moved up yeah, yeah over october Chicago. 8th to the wow. october yeah the it was broadcast on nbc and cbs wow did you go how was all, this is going to sound really awful, but how did all of Chicago not throw themselves into the lake between the Cubs losing and then the Great Depression? Because half of Chicago was Sox fans. True, though. <laughs> the entire north side is empty now. And they were really also, you had the mobsters <laughs> taking over things and you had prohibition, yeah, yeah. so. Yeah, you had a lot going on in the 20s. You had prohibition, so it was easier than ever to get really drunk. It was. <laughs> uh... Are you asked to see me, Mr. Baker? Yes. Sit down, sweetland. Look, after the abysmal season we just had, I'm sure everyone in the Philadelphia Phillies organization appreciates your attempt to lighten the mood with your little joke. But as uh, the what owner... Joke, Mr. Baker? You mean asking for 80 grand this season? Yes! Demanding the highest salary in baseball after losing 15 games and finishing the season with a 7-7-1 ERA is a pretty funny gag. But as the but owner... But it's not a joke, Mr. Baker. I deserve 80 grand. For the love of God, Sweetland, did you get so dizzy watching your fastballs fly into the cheap seats that you forgot your ERA should be low, not high? Remember when Babe Ruth signed a contract with the Yankees last year for more than Hoover was making? And the Bambino told reporters it was because he had a better year? Uh, yeah, I seem to remember that. Well, if Ruth had a better 1929 than Hoover, I sure as heck had a better 1930 than that schmo. Sweetland, you are the worst pitcher of all time! And Herbert Hoover is the worst president of all time. Next to Hoover, Andrew Johnson is like Walter Johnson. You gave up almost a run an inning! But that's still only 164 runs. There were 774 bank runs under Hoover last year, more than the entire 1920s combined. You had only eight complete games in 25 starts. You were always handing the ball over to a reliever. And there was no relief under Hoover. He came up with all them fancy federal programs for the millions of people who were losing their jobs, and then didn't get Congress to fund them. I'll admit... You gave up fewer bases on balls than any other pitcher on the staff. But that's because you never made any intentional walks since you always loaded the bases. And what did Hoover do with the bases loaded? When the economy was sinking like the Lusitania and the stock market was crashing like a Fokker Eindecker with a busted propeller? Smoot Hawley! Smoot Hawley? The Reds' backup catcher? 
No, Mr. Baker, I mean the big tariff bill that Hoover signed back in June that slapped extra duties on every single product coming in through the ports. Hoover said prices sky high when people could least afford to pay. That's like walking Chuck Klein to get to Lefty O'Doul. Which plenty of pitchers did last season. And Lefty made him pay. Like a lefty is going to make Hoover pay in 32. Sweetland, has it occurred to you that if you focused less on current event and more on your curve ball, you might have a winning record one of these days? Skip, I got two ambitions in life. To be a good pitcher and to be a good citizen. If I manage only one of those goals, I still got a 500 record. Still a lot better than the Phillies did this season, eh? Indeed, it is. And in that spirit, Sweetland... I think I'll trade you to some place where the fans don't care about winning the World Series. You mean the Bush Leagues? No, the Cubs. So I think, uh, real quick, James, the Great Depression or the Greatest Depression. Ooh. How does it fit on your top five uh, economic crises? <laughs> it's the it's the worst one in, in modern times. Um, I think that's pretty unquestionable. Um, if you want to go back to, you know, it, it, and with with ancient ones, it's hard. Like, how do we judge the 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 you know the Great Plague? You know, the Black Death. You know that that wiped out a lot of wealth too, because a lot of people just straight up died. Get rid of the, a tenth of the population of Europe is going to. I should laugh do about that. that, but I'm sorry. I <laughs> well, that, will, because... I, that will impact your economic outlook if you're dead. Yeah. You're dead that's, now. That's the most 21st century thing we've said on this podcast, I think. Although my weirdly... favorite thing, okay, my favorite thing from looking at ancient economies is that when a bunch of people die, average wages go up because labor yeah. becomes more valuable. We're getting into like Watt Tyler's rebellion, well, where I think it uh, turns out uh, I think we're seeing that now. Yes, I was going to say, yep, yep. The way the story is told about the depression is it came out of nowhere. Nobody saw it, and then Black Friday came, and mm. we dug ourselves a hole, and we had almost ten fell years into of a it, satisfied crisis. our soul. True did, or false, y'all? Did oh. people still believe that? I mean. <laughs> Mm, that's what I grew there, up with. There were a couple of, mar I mean, it's, I guess it's like uh, the uh, 2008 collapse and everybody was swimming as fast as they could to get everything done. And then once it's over, they can look back in hindsight and say, oh, well, there. Uh, but my understanding was with the depression, there were red flags coming up, but people just did not really look at them. I mean, especially in Europe, right? I mean, there's multiple bank failures in the early 1930s in Europe, and I think it's a real mistake, and I'd really like to hear James's take on this, but I think it's a real mistake of the Hoover administration to look at Europe and these multiple bank failures um, and say, ah, it's just because of Europe's continuingly poor post-World War I economy. Right. Luckily, there will be no further negative effects of that. <laughs> <laughs> Not us smart Americans and the way we work with money. So the Depression hits, and it's sort of a, te a textbook, if you'll forgive the term. Like every dumb, wrong, bad, idiotic, ridiculous, what the hell are you doing thing Hoover could do, he does. Can I ask just again, like a really silly question? Because the again, the thing that made the depression so horrible was that it's one of the it it really seemed to affect every level of society. No, because I read um, mm -hmm. Oppenheimer came from a wealthy family, and it was said that he didn't know about the depression until someone told him about it. He was so unaffected by it. So not everybody was touched. It, it, I mean, people like to say it permeated through all levels of society, but I think we all, we all saw Seabiscuit. I think we know. <laughs> uh, also, did you know that Seabiscuit ran one of his first races at the uh, Michigan State Fair, which do, has now, now been turned into an Amazon warehouse and a transit center? 
Thanks, late stage capitalism. <laughs> so a, a little bit more about kind of the, the crash. Um, because one, you know, I think that the idea that it, it affects all, it did affect all areas of society, but like how it affects the wealthy is very different, right? The wealthy look at their stock portfolio and say, oh, this is really sad. I've lost all my money. But when they say I've lost all my money, they've still got, you know, a million dollars. So Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. And- Always buy on the dip. <laughs> And so, you know, while they're having a lot, you know, less fun, they're still eating and surviving. Whereas many people who are even comfortably middle-class suddenly aren't. And that's, I think, you know, we talk about like, I feel like this is especially true in the United States that the middle-class writes history. And what happens to the middle-class is perceived as kind of what happens to the people. And the Great Depression, is one where you could have a, like, and this is what I tell my students, you could be a person who in 1928 was gainfully employed, had a decent paying job, had money in your savings account and owned your own home. And in 1929, none of those things could be true through no fault of your own. You could have gotten laid off from work, your bank could have failed and you could have lost your savings and the bank could have foreclosed on your mortgage and taken your house. Luckily, um, this was never a problem ever again. <laughs> Right. And so the, but I think the fact that this is happening to people who felt like they've made it, people who felt like they had built security and stability in their lives. And then all of a sudden that's yanked out from under them um, and, and leaving them and, and their families with nothing. I, I think that's, that's the real trauma of the depression and the fact that it happened on the scale it did. And the fact that it took so long to recover is what really kind of makes the great depression unique. It's not that oh, we'd never seen these series of events happen before. Again, the Great Depression looks a lot like a lot of other liquidity crunches, but it just was bigger. Um, and, you know, was, you know, the the right series of events were in place for it to be bigger and last longer. Can you help me, mister? I ain't eaten in three days. Are you hungry for something new and tasty? Do you have an appetite for change? No, I'm just plain hungry. Try our new patented Hoover Stone Soup. Sounds tasty. How does it work? It's a simple trick. Toss a stone in a big pot of boiling water. Got it. Stones, water, I can manage. What next? Then invite all your friends over for a hearty helping. Wait, I can't feed myself. How am I going to feed all my friends? (laughs) That's the trick. You simply ask your friends to bring one ingredient to add to your soup. Someone will bring carrots, others some onions or herbs, until you have a delicious stew. Sweet. Hey guys, come help me make some stone soup. Oh yeah. Well, it should be about done. Ugh, yuck. This just tastes like Rock water. Hey, it's nothing but stones. Come on, you guys. Well, what did you expect? None of us has nothing but rocks neither. At least old Witter Jones tossed in some salt and pepper. We got some seasonings this time. Pick up some Hoover stone soup today. Very funny, wise guy. We're still hungry. Then dine in luxury on plentiful Hoover hogs. Hey, I'm... What'd you catch today? A rat? Squirrel? A pigeon? Ah, nah, we're eating in style tonight. Got me an armadillo. Mmm, mmm, Hoover He's much more than a one-time loser when you think depression. You think Hoover. Thanks, Hoover. When was the Federal Reserve Board established? I feel like it was under Wilson, but I could be wrong about that. It was Wilson. It was 1913. Thank you, Woody. And two, um, didn't, what role would you say the gigantic tariff that uh, Hoover and his allies enacted in 1930 over the howls of protest from most of the wealthy men in America 
the beautifully named Smooth Holly Tariff. Uh, do you think that had a role in exacerbating the uh, panic? It probably did. I think that, again, the, you start to get into this like realm of, even today, trade policy, I think, is perhaps one of the least well-understood areas of economics that we don't really understand if you set tariffs to X, what happens to Y GDP. We just don't really know. Um, the, you know, the, the basic theory that we've been working under since David Ricardo is that, um, you know, if you have the theory of comparative advantage suggests that free trade leads to higher levels of productivity globally. Um, but, you know, so there's kind of two perspectives. The, the, by, if they hadn't enacted the tariff and other countries hadn't enacted retaliatory tariffs, Free trade would have continued, which should have allowed there to be more trade and therefore more business, less people laid off, less people losing their jobs, etc. Another perspective is other countries were going to raise tariffs anyways, so it didn't really hurt the United States to raise its own tariff. Like, were the other tariffs just what the other countries are going to do, or were they in direct retaliation to hot smoothly, hot smoothly, smooth holly? Smoot Holly, there it is. Um, That's and, also the sound that my dog makes when she yawns. <laughs> I'm not. I, I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask about that again a couple more times. Um, and I think that the, you know, the the thought with raising the tariffs is okay. All of a sudden, we are facing a demand crunch. People aren't buying radios. People aren't buying automobiles. If we raise the tariff, we can at least insulate them from foreign competition which hopefully will help them kind of maintain market share even in a declining market. Um, but I, I do think, it, so, you know, that was kind of the different things that played out at the time. I think in retrospect, we say that was a bad call, that that probably made things worse than made things better. Um, but I don't really know that they, it made that much of a difference. Um, um, you know, the Federal Reserve didn't have as many tools as they did later, but the tools that they did have, they didn't uh, use properly. Ow! My shoe is busted and I can't afford a new pair. I ain't even got money to pay a cobbler. Tired of taking that old worn out pair of shoes to the neighborhood cobbler? Save money with patented Hoover Leather, the convenient new fix your own shoes product. Leather? This is a piece of cardboard. That's right. With your Hoover leather, you can repair those ripped up shoes so you can go back to pounding the pavement all day looking for work that isn't there. With a little glue and rubber bands, you can almost not feel the concrete. Now if I only had some glue and rubber bands. Don't push your luck. Find some Hoover leather today. more than a one-time loser when you think depression you think hoover gee thanks hoover uh, right. like the... and is it 32 is the is the bonus army that we're leading to here that we're talking about hooverville in bc were there other hoover there were hoovervilles nationally right yes yeah. i don't even know if they considered themselves a hooverville although they yeah, certainly were they were a tent city yes. but uh so, and I'll just jump in here that the, the story of the bonus army is actually very similar to an earlier one for civil war vets like Coxie's army, but that's, that never got the publicity. So these are World War I veterans who've been promised uh, bonuses that are supposed to pay out. They're basically bonds. They're supposed to pay out in 1945, I, which is kind of ironic. They didn't realize at the time that that would be the end of the Second World War, but they basically approach and say, look, well, we're starving now. So we realize that they haven't matured. Could you pay them out early? And we, you know, they're, I believe the it's a negotiation hell of a was, long time to wait, isn't it? 27 yeah. years to get well, your freaking payout? But the, but that was the yeah, idea was that most bonds. of them would be dead. I mean, look, I'll, I'll share a personal story because I know Joe said we should start sharing stories. One, two of my great grandfathers served, and one uh, had a very tragic story. He was one of 11 boys, 13 children. His mom picked him to go and told him as much that she he was the one she wouldn't miss. She's a shitty person. Uh, <laughs> wow. And when I when I get to hell, that's the first fight I'm going to pick is with Miranda Wallace. Knock her teeth out. 
Uh, and, you know, I, uh, yeah, I'll look for Reagan. You know, he's on the list, but uh, he got I gassed. He, he got gassed uh... and sort of narrowly survived. He had horrific flashbacks for the rest of his life. He would uh, believe he was in France, but recognize his children and make them hide under beds while he stood over them with a shotgun. It's a little unclear if that was for them or for the approaching Germans. I don't want to get into it. But his prognosis was that he should not have lived through the 30s. Uh, they, and amazingly, he lived to the mid-60s, so like he did well. I also learned this recently. He was six feet tall, which feels like a death sentence for trench warfare. <laughs> but anyway, that's kind of what they were banking on. It's sort of like Reagan avoiding talking about Agent Orange. He was waiting for more of them to die so that it would cost less. And I or think that was the idea with these kicking bombs. in at 65, because how yeah. many people were making it to then? That was the idea, was that it's like, we're not, don't worry, we're never going to have to pay this. Everyone's going to be dead. And so, of course, the still living World War I veterans march in and say, could you please help us since, you know, we helped you. And uh, the response wasn't so great. Hoover authorized uh, General MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, to use force. And he, uh, I'll share this because I know this, I just know this story and I thought it was interesting. He subcontracts out to two colonels, I guess not contracts, but he, he you know, he orders delegates. them to carry this out. Yes, he delegates. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, one person refuses because he thinks it's disgraceful to fight American veterans. That's future President Dwight Eisenhower. And the other person enthusiastically leads a cavalry charge, and that is General George Patton, or at the time, Colonel George S. Patton. And luckily, Ooh. General MacArthur was never called on to make questionable decisions fighting alleged communists <laughs> ever again. Right? Oh, boy. And all of that happened as the 1932 presidential election is ramping up. Wow. Yeah. There's actually, there's a funny bit of pop culture here. A movie comes out in 19, I think in 1933, called Gabriel Over the White House. And it depicts something very similar, except the fictitious president does the opposite and sort of bargains with the veterans. And uh, they asked new first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, about it. And she basically said, like, I thought it looked a lot better in the movie <laughs> than it actually did. Like, they really, they really let him have it. And uh, I think he deserves, I think Hoover deserves that that disgrace oh yeah well and, and as as i'm looking over the 1932 campaign and obviously when again much more when we get to fdr and oh boy will there be a lot i'm quite sure i lost my home and my farm my family and i have been living on the streets looking for a great new neighborhood to call your own come to hooverville Hooverville mania is spreading across the nation. Popular new communities are springing up all over the country. Hooverville? It's just a bunch of homeless folks pitching tents. Hoovervilles are located in prime real estate across the country, from Seattle to Central Park. Easy access to transportation in your own Hoover boxcar. There's even a luxury Hooverville developing in Washington, D.C., in the shadow of the White House. July 1932, in the grips of the Great Depression, 43,000 demonstrators converged on Washington to demand an advance on bonuses promised to veterans of the Great War. Though they were nonviolent, they would soon meet resistance from the very army they served. Esther, right away, I think I have just the men for the job. Colonel Eisenhower. Yes, General MacArthur. I'm afraid the worst has happened. President Hoover decided to spend money enforcing prohibition while children are starving? I'm afraid the two worst things have happened. The bonus army is occupying public land and humiliating the government. And President Hoover has authorized us to use force. But, sir, the group is maybe one-third veterans. Around two-thirds are women and children. What's the problem? Problem is, these free-loading bastards won't take no for an answer. These bums are filthy, lazy degenerates. Um, um, actually, our intelligence shows that they've organized sanitation brigades and laid out streets in a grid formation through their camp. They're parading every day. These are model soldiers. Model soldiers don't embarrass the government like this. Model soldiers do as they're told. I'm sure it's a gang of deserters and layabouts. But you have to prove you were honorably discharged to even march with them. The only 
discharge I'm interested in is discharging my sidearm straight into that crowd. They know the bonds can't be claimed until 1945. 1945? We could be at the end of another world war by then. My manly lips to God's ears, but you never know. That's why we have to pick our battles, and I pick all of them, including this fight against our own men. They'll never see it coming. Ah, uh, Colonel Patton. Sorry I'm late. I had to shoot my way up the sidewalk. You got my orders, then. Orders? <laughs> no, that's how I always walk up the street. George, you can't possibly think it's a good idea to attack American veterans. I never think, Dwight. It's what makes me a great commander. No thoughts, no fears, no regard at all for human life. Plus, these protesters are essentially communists. That is not true. They've been expelling communist agitators. Their motto is, eyes front, not left. But there's a threat of communism, right? If you feel threatened, there's a threat. Well, that's enough pretext for me to attack thousands of honorably discharged veterans. Let me lace up murdering boots. General MacArthur, this is outrageous. I'm with Patton. If these men didn't want to be killed by tanks, they shouldn't have trusted the country they fought for. Listen, you dumb sons of bitches. Do not go down there. Why? You think we're scared? We got tanks and guns. Can you think of anybody who's brave in the face of tanks and guns? Literally the thousands of veterans you're attacking. We'll see about that. Unnecessary cavalry charge! Hi, I'm Tommy Spears, the writer of this sketch. This disgraceful episode ended about how you'd think. Patton led a cavalry charge, then the infantry gassed the unarmed protesters and charged them with bayonets. Two veterans were killed, and a 12-week-old baby, and a woman in the camp miscarried. The bastards won that day. But after two and a half years of watching violent cops beat up civilians, wouldn't you rather hear the nation's poor win one for a change? Yeah, me too. Who the hell are you? I'm Brad Pitt. I'm here to take historically inaccurate revenge on you. It's kind of my thing. His abs oh. are like a washboard. We can't fight a man this young. I'm 58. <laughs> How is that fair? Hey, it's Joe Angelo, that striking bastard who saved my life in France. Joe, save me. Eh, I would, but you did just tear gas us. Ever seen one of these? Is that a trench club with nails sticking through it? Here, take a closer look. I won't oh. return. If they make a movie about my life, make sure I look like a cool cowboy and not a high-voiced asshole who wasted thousands of American lives. Ugh. In doing a little bit of research to try to get ready to talk to our president, presidentialists who certainly know quite a bit about Herbert Hoover, when I first started to type Herbert Hoover on the Google machine, the first thing that came up was Herbert Hoover revisionism. And as we roll on this, it's the first president that I, that I think we've encountered where there apparently seemed there, there does seem to be this rather conscious effort to make people think differently of him uh, rather than who the way most people think of him. I don't know. I <clears throat> I feel like there are a handful of presidents who we've we've had this same conversation about, right? Like <coughs> Jefferson, about, Jefferson, <laughs> Grant. I was gonna say Jefferson, um, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, right? There's a lot of of presidents who we have said the same thing about. I don't know that we have used the term revisionist. Um, Laura and I might have used that to describe. Uh, Jefferson, um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy it, Joe. Maybe it's the first time that we've had folks that there's been a push by recent scholars to improve their legacy and not re-examine their problematic legacy. Although I think we had this conversation with Grant. 
Mm. We we did, but so it made not, him look better, I think. Right. With well, Grant, the argument was he was actually he he was a better president, and I think if we remember doc, Dr. Norman, uh, there is a compelling case that he actually got short shift. He actually did get short shifted, and probably did a lot more than we gave him credit for. This one is. Like you said, Chelsea, I mean, there are things he did as president which really weren't very good. There were things he did after pres after the presidency and even after the election, which was not very good. But now there are all these a lot of modern era people that a lot of historians coming in going, no, don't think of him as one of the worst presidents. He was actually really good. James. Anyway. Yeah. As the person who understands economics, I have I've always understood hoover revisionism and my father you know pre-depression baby that he was said oh, i did a lot of great work beforehand and afterwards just had a bad presidency now i've always understood that hoover revisionism was tied up in economics and that people and you know freedmen types free market types uh, people who believe in say monetary po policy as opposed to fiscal policy if i'm using those terms correctly they are at the heart of hoover revisionism because they hate the New Deal. Yeah. I think that there's some truth to that in that they... So, I guess from, from my perspective, and again, this is this is my opinion as an economist. It is not, it is not necessarily 100% uh, fact, but I believe it is more factually than not. I don't think that Hoover had the tools available to him or the information available to him to prevent the depression from occurring, or at least preventing the panic from occurring, you know, prevent kind of the the crash from occurring. Um, I think that perhaps there are things that he could have done, and people were telling him, "Hey, this there's there's kind of a bad moon rising here with some of what we're seeing with the increase in levels of debt, um, and the we know and we know that there are flaws in the banking system." But when the panic actually started to happen, a lot of the revisionists have said, well, the panic was really made worse initially by the actions of the Federal Reserve. And I would agree with that. I would agree that that the Federal Reserve really probably should shoulder more of the blame and kind of the initial panic for the depths that the crash kind of went to. That if the Federal Reserve had stepped in more quickly and said, no, we're going to be accommodating, we're going to backstop the financial system. Um, the panic didn't need to be as bad and the crash didn't need to be as deep as it was. Um, but in terms of Hoover's, uh, you know, after the panic, which was most of his presidency, you know, um, I think sometimes the history, like the history of stuff is always kind of interesting. Like, I feel like we learned that the, the crash happened like right at the end of Hoover's presidency and that like, oh, then like, oh, he was terrible. And so then immediately Roosevelt came in. But no, the crash happened in the first year of Hoover's presidency. And the crash continued for the rest of his presidency, <laughs> right? Like there were three long years of, oh God, the sky is falling. Which after having experienced two long years of, oh God, the sky is falling. Um, that's a long time. Um, and I don't think that anyone can really point to any uh, measure of success that Hoover had uh, in real terms after the crash happened of trying to restore the economy. I think that he was honest in his desire for it to rest restore itself. And I think he was also honest in his thought that he didn't believe that he like heavy-handed government intervention was correct. The problem was he was wrong about those things. He was dead wrong. And fiscal stimulus does make a difference. And if anything, the New Deal failed because the New Deal wasn't big enough. Hi, Grammy. Hurrah, my favorite great-granddaughter. They treating you well here? Oh, considering how old everyone here is, could be worse. Don't give the nurses too much grief. Oh, no, never. Oh, oh talk to me about your studies, dear. Oh, I am so proud of you. We have a historian in the family. We will after I finish my thesis. I'm going to write about Herbert Hoover, Grammy. Oh, Herbert Hoover? 
Yeah, not many people write about him. It's because he was an asshat. Grammy, who taught you to call someone an, an asshat? Oh, well, one of the students from the high school that volunteers here once a week. Oh, don't give me aw. All you need to know about Herbert Hoover was that he caused your Grammy to have the hard life that I had. Oh, Grammy. Everyone says that about him. But I think you're being unfair. If you Unfair? My father lost all his money in the damn stock market after voting for Hoover. Grammy, the president has little effect on the stock market. It's true then, and it's true My now. father lost his business and didn't find work for three years. What huh? did Hoover do about that? Actually, President Hoover did a lot to try to get business leaders to help. My daddy imported dresses from Italy until Hoover's stupid tariffs closed his shop. Yes, I know people like to blame terrorists for making the Depression worse. I had to wear the same dress for three years. Not this again. And I was growing. Yeah, you don't understand. I you don't understand wearing a three-year-old's dress when you are six. I know, but Herbert Hoover was trying to let private business pull itself up by the bootstraps. You know, like Reagan did in the 80s. Oh, boy. You're trying to kill your great-grandmother? Uh-oh. Herbert Hoover is the second worst president after that other asshat jerkwad Donald Trump. Jerkwad? That volunteer has a charming way with words, doesn't she? Grammy. History is more complicated than... Oh, is this what history is about? Getting your elders so worked up you wipe them out so you can rewrite history and make heroes out of asshat jerkwads? Is fancy history more important than your family's history? Of course not. Of, of course not. Look, I don't want to fight. <sighs> Neither do I. I'm too old for this shit. That's some volunteer. Oh, no. I got that after watching Lethal Weapon in the rec room yesterday. That Danny Glover, what a hottie. It may be better that we don't talk about my project anymore. It would be better if you didn't make Herbert Hoover a hero. But I don't want to fight either. You write what you want. But before you turn it in, you should talk to me about the Great Depression and what Herbert Hoover did to me. I will do that. I promise. And put my story in your thesis. I'll ask my teacher uh, later. Yeah, but not right now. Want to come to the rec room? They're showing Lethal Weapon 2. Sure. Do they have popcorn or anything like that? Oh, just cream corn. We're old folks. We like what teeth we have. <laughs> of course you do. I hope Danny Glover talks dirty in this movie, too. <laughs> yeah, you might see Mel Gibson's butt, too. <laughs> Eat too. <laughs> Well, um, Patrick, I will let you ask uh, the list question because as we're wrapping up the discussion, it's I, it may be a more interesting answer. Yeah, so this, I mean, I guess this is more to our lovely audience at home, our listeners. Uh, we frequently brought up the idea of the list of uh, best presidents and Hoover is decidedly at the bottom of that list most of the time uh, to the point that Whenever we have a guest, of course, I will ask them who their least favorite president other than Herbert Hoover is. But you, dear listeners at home, have you changed your mind? Is Herbert <laughs> Hoover still the worst president? Tell us in, I guess, is Facebook. He even, is he in the top tweet us. We don't have a Twitter, but tweet us anyway. Is he in the bottom five? Is, is he, he in the bottom, bottom ten? Or, or is, is Herbert the Hoover 10? the best president the bottom 10. that we've ever yeah, had? I'd still put him bottom ten. If we're weighing bottom in 10. ourselves. Oh, absolutely. Bottom I'd probably still put him bottom five. five. I think I might put him bottom five. The I don't know. I think he floats around. Johnson. No, I'd say Buchanan, Buchanan and Johnson. Johnson, are at the Buchanan. Andrew. Yes. Buchanan. The former Pierce, guy. Andrew and the Jackson former guy. For moral reasons. 
Um, Bill Moore. Yes. I don't know. I don't know if I put well, Bill Moore that. He's so. bottom ten, but Fuck. I wouldn't put him Polk. bottom five. Well, Johnson Buchanan. Ooh, yeah, Polk? Polk. Polk is definitely. Why Polk? Really? Is it because of the cannibal thing? Yeah, it's the cannibal thing. And I don't know. I. I think you could eat some people and still be better than the last guy. <laughs> who probably has eaten some people while they're yeah. still alive. I mean, he seems like the kind me. who's yeah. He seems like the kind who's paid to to hunt people. Yeah, like Fillmore. Although luckily, he seems like the That's kind of guy. Put him down there. He, he seems like the kind of guy who would have paid to hunt people, uh, but never actually managed to pull it off. Well, I eat Nixon, right? I mean, and oh, there yeah. are some kind of vaguely not super horrible things about Nixon, but like the horrible things really outweigh those things. Dude, totally. Nixon's in my bottom five for sure. So you you hear that goes to Herbert Hoover, you may have squeaked up and you to still in like the bottom was it twenty percent. He's not about he's not about to be relegated. Uh, <laughs> Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Next DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.